Welcome to the Content Strategy Experts podcast brought to you by Scriptorium. In episode six, we discuss how to make content accessible with our special guest, Shar James Tanney. Today, I'm delighted to welcome a special guest. Shar James Tanney is a content strategist with over 35 years of experience as a technical communicator. She is currently a principal technical writer for Schneider Electric and based out of Boston. She is also an advocate for accessibility, and that's our topic for today. Shar, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. It is great to talk to you. So let's jump right in. How did you get started in accessibility? When I was 10, I broke four toes on my right foot, skateboarding, while being towed by a bike on Easter Sunday in upstate New York. I hit a piece of ice, flew through the air, landed badly, and amazingly enough, in 50 years, nothing has changed in how they can treat broken toes. But I couldn't walk to and from school anymore. So my parents made arrangements for me to be picked up by this little shuttle bus because we lived about 25 minutes from the New York State School for the Deaf. And for six weeks, I rode a bus with everybody else was deaf. And we couldn't communicate. And you know me, and you know I like to chalk. It wasn't any different when I was 10. And so they taught me how to fingerspell so that we could at least carry on very basic communications for the like eight minutes that I was with them. And since then, everything in my life has just sort of tripped along and I just keep gaining experiences in accessibility. And then all of a sudden it was like, wow, there's a hashtag for accessibility on Twitter. There are people talking about accessibility. For the longest time, it was... Like people didn't know, it just like with TechCom for the longest time, nobody knew other people who were doing WinHelp. It was the same with accessibility and all of a sudden it opened up the floodgates and you could find people who knew more than you did, who could teach you. You brought things to the equation that they didn't know and that's how I got started. So, so what is accessibility or what is your definition of it? How do you uh, constrain that field? Because I know there's a lot there. There is a lot there, and it it tends to scare people uh, just because it is such a wide field. For me, accessibility ties into usability because what you're doing is not just making something usable for somebody who has all their senses and full mobility and everything else, but you're making products that work no matter what constraints the person might have to try and work with. So we use, they use... Go ahead. I was just going to say, so you've got people who use screen readers. They're not always blind, but there are people who use screen readers, which reads the stuff on the screen to them, and then they can talk back. So they text through their iPhones by talking. They read Facebook by listening. They post by talking. People who are deaf, that's who needs captions and video description. So they can watch the video, and even though they can't hear what's going on, they can tell what's going on. They perceive it. Mobility issues, people with arthritis or cerebral palsy or even just a broken arm who need to be able to navigate a website, there need to be keystrokes. Typically, we use the tab key. It helps if people add in links that let people jump to different sections. Some apps like screen readers have special key combinations that pull up anything styled as a heading. Not anything that looks like a heading, but something that is styled as a heading. So it seems like there's an analogy here to the physical world and and you even kind of touched on this with your, you know, your broken foot example. 
we have um, we have curb cuts and we have um, traffic lights or, or you know pedestrian lights that make noises in addition to having visual walk don't walk kinds of signs and it sounds as though what you're describing is that same kind of um, guideposting or those same kinds of alternatives being provided in the online world in the content world. Yes, I actually did talk about, you know, I'm trying to find the curb cut for documentation at one point <laughs> because curb cut started after World War II, um, a little city in the Midwest. Basically, somebody was watching these vets who could not get up over curbs between crutches and wheelchairs and things. And once curb cuts were adopted and they spread, it went from there to San Francisco and then just everywhere. Now curb cuts are mandatory. But you'll notice everybody uses the curb cut. People who have trouble bending their knees because of arthritis use a curb cut. Mothers who are pushing strollers use a curb cut. People pulling wheelie suitcases use a curb cut. So even though it might have been originally designed for a specific accessibility purpose, it's open to everyone and makes everybody's life easier. And the same thing happens when documents and websites and podcasts and videos are accessible. It not only accommodates that person who needs that specific thing, but it actually makes it easier and better for everyone. So, it, it, you know, we mentioned the, the physical, the curb cuts, and I think for those of us listening in the United States, we know that those are a legal requirement of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Is there a similar legal requirement for the content accessibility that we're talking about? Not officially in the United States, no. There is Section 508, which is for government. So anybody who does business with the government and any government site has to be accessible. It's also a procurement law, which means that when the government is looking to hire a vendor and they have to choose between vendor A, who has a really sucky interface or product, but it's accessible, and vendor B, who has this gorgeous product, but isn't accessible, they have to go with vendor A. Okay. And what about worldwide? Are there other countries or other uh, regions where there are accessibility requirements? Yes, pretty much every place but here. Uh, WCAG 2.0 is the base standard, and the new Section 508, which is due out, uh, I believe, next January, January 2018, um, will tie into WCAG because WCAG 1 went for very specific rules, like you will use this font size sort of thing or whatever. Now they've made it so so much more generic because our our phones are computers really and so therefore if you're going to make something accessible it needs to be accessible not just on a computer but on a smartphone on a tablet on a watch anything that is a device that has electronic capabilities that's what we're aiming toward but section 508 as far as i know will still only be for government accessibility is just a good thing to do if you're in the states even without a legal requirement Okay, and we'll include um, links to all of these things in the show notes. Um, WCAG is WCAG, by the way. Sorry, <laughs> Web, Web Content Accessibility <laughs> Guidelines 2.0, which well, is put out I'm, by I'm which I'm is put out by Way, which is uh -huh. Web Accessibility Initiative, which is comes from the W3C, which is the World Wide Web Consortium. Well, I, I knew how to spell it, and then there my knowledge ended. <laughs> so. 
Yeah, we. Uh, but we'll get yeah, we'll get those links in um, so that you so that everybody has them. Okay, so there are there's some amount of legal requirement, and if you're operating globally, you're going to be dealing with multiple different jurisdictions. So now, if I'm a content person, a content creator, um, where do I get started with this? I mean, how do I even know is my content accessible or not? I, I have no idea. So where do I start? Well, one advantage for tech commerce is that we typically like styles. Not all of us, but most of us. And <laughs> if you're doing something like Structured Frame, you're already partway there because you have to follow that structured authoring paradigm, which means heading one, followed by content, heading two, followed by content, heading three, followed by content. That's accessible. Heading one to heading five isn't really accessible because it's missing several steps. <laughs> So tech commerce, as in general, tend to already be producing somewhat accessible documents, even though they don't realize it. So that's the text side of things. And then what about um, other other media like graphics, video, audio? All right. So when you get to graphics, video, and even text, you want to watch color contrast. Color contrast is how easy is something to read. So obviously black on white is really good because everybody can pretty much, anybody who can see can easily typically read black on white. Um, some dyslexics actually find blue on yellow to be a better combination. And some people have said that if you tone the white down a bit, it's not as glary, which also makes it easier to read. Where you run into problems is when you do things, um, for example, I have a site up on my screen where the hyperlinks are in a, a lighter shade of blue. Now, I can see it, but people who have different sets of, a diff, some kind of colorblindness, let's go with that, um, might see the text more as gray. They might still be able to recognize it as a link, but due to the fact that it's just blue and it doesn't underline until you mouse over it, they may or may not actually recognize it as a link. People who use tab, the mobility side, would actually tab to the link. And so that wouldn't the color wouldn't be an issue. The color is an issue for people who are low vision or who have uh, some form of color blindness. And there's like nine or 12 different kinds of color blindness. So, okay, so for graphics and well, any visual display, we need to worry about color and color contrast. Yes. And then what about uh, audio, like this podcast? The audio should be, well, it doesn't need to be transcribed because there's nothing to see. Uh, no, it needs to be transcribed because you want the words. It doesn't need to be described because there's nothing to see. So an yes, audio but... transcription means that somebody sits there and, well, there's tools actually that'll do that. It'll listen to us. It'll listen to the recording. It'll do its best guess. Same as if you, you know, send a text message by talking into your phone. Uh, which sometimes works and sometimes you get weird words and then you just clean it up. That's one way to make a podcast accessible for somebody who is deaf or who needs or has, you know, some sort of hearing issue. Um, for video, you want to caption it so that people, it, it, this not only helps people who are deaf, it helps people who are sitting in bars at airports waiting for their flight or at the gate at the airport waiting for their flight where there's a huge amount of background noise and you can't hear what they're saying on the TV that might be in the, at the gate area. So these captions make it so that everybody knows what's going on. 
description is when they actually do things like, per, you know, the guy named Joe just walked across the stage, or walked across the living room and said, and then Joe's voice jumps in. So they can audio describe TV, uh, TV shows and movies and things like that. A friend of mine in England has a setting on her TV that automatically enables audio description so that when she's watching TV, she gets the full the full experience, even though she can't see it. So it almost sounds as though they're taking what would have been in the original script and you know, sort of reverse engineering it back in. Basically, yeah. Huh. But a lot so, of people only get as far as adding captions, which is good, but it doesn't provide the depth of detail. Mm -hmm. So if I'm, you know, sitting here faced with a product that I need to document or some technical content that I need to write, um, what are some of the best practices to think about as I'm sort of thinking about what is, what's going to be my strategy for this content and then eventually I'm going to localize it? But at what point in the process should I be thinking about accessibility? From the beginning, at the very start. Uh, I did a project once. Somebody had created a multi-tabbed Excel spreadsheet um, for a class. I guess it was like their homework, trying to remember the project. And they got all done with it. And somebody said, by the way, it needs to be accessible. And so I had to go back and pretty much redo it. I had to change the colors. I had to change the font sizes. I had to change the font families. I had to get headings into Excel, which is always a fun time. Um, <laughs> so that they could, you know, navigate around. Uh, all that kind of stuff. The fact is, if somebody had started from the very beginning and said, okay, look, we need, this is our color combination. It's already verified. This is the font family we're going to use. This is the font size we're going to use. This is how we're going to differentiate headings. Poof, it would be done. And when they got all done, they'd have an accessible Excel spreadsheet. Instead, because they brought me in later, um, the end result was sort of like an extra 15 grand for this 10 tab Excel spreadsheet to make it accessible because I had to go back and redo everything but the content. So this is just like anything else. If you plan it up front, it'll be fine. And if you glue it on after the fact, it'll be not as good and cost a ton of money. Yes. And not only that, but if you glue it on after the fact, typically what happens is you start project A and it's not set up for accessibility. And so Project A is working its way through its little product cycle. And halfway through Project A, you start Project B. Now you get to the end of Project A and you go, oh, we should have included Project B. Or we should have made it accessible. But now Project B is already three quarters of the way through its cycle. And now you got to paste it on there. Whereas if you start from the beginning by making it accessible, by setting up templates that are accessible, by having everybody on the same page, because we're talking more than just the styles and the format and the colors. We're also talking words, especially for us. We're tech commerce. So yeah. words matter. And it does seem as though we have a responsibility to think about this in the same way that nobody else thinks about, uh, you know, style guides or anything like that. I mean, this is one of these things that as content producers, we're responsible for. Correct. I saw it. Um, was I was working on something the other day. Um, I, I was editing something, I think, for a friend of mine. And there was a sentence that said, once you do this step once. So they've now used once two different ways. Once meaning after and once meaning one time. Now, that'll cause issues 
just in general understandability for almost anybody in the world, but it'll also cause problems with translation. And that example specifically, not so much for SEO, for search engine optimization, but other examples. I mean, if you make things accessible, you automatically make your translations better, your localizations better, your search engine optimization better, and everybody benefits. Another good word that's been coming up a lot lately is follow. Follow the following steps. Mm -hmm. All right, so proceed in order through the steps that come after this paragraph. So somebody needs to, when you're setting up your style guide, you need to indicate which words are and are not allowed or how they should be used, especially if you're going to translation. So it sounds as though, I mean, potentially this can basically pay for itself because A, if you do it up front, it's not that expensive. B, it's going to help with translation or localization cost efficiency and all of that. And C, you're, you know, you're expanding your market, right? I mean, you're, you're expanding your market in the sense that, for example, the U.S. government will look more kindly on your product if it's accessible. But also anyone that cares about accessibility that's a customer will be more likely to buy your product. Yeah, and one of the most common things I heard before I started working for Schneider Electric when I was still a, a consultant would be, you know, I'd, I'd say something about accessibility and the answer would almost always be, we don't have any disabled users. Hmm. And it's like, and how do you know that? Well, that's interesting because years and years and years ago, the first time I actually ran across accessibility was because we had a customer that called us up and said, we need... Uh, some form of help. It was a long time ago. And our help absolutely has to be accessible. And this had to have been maybe 15 years ago. I mean, it was, it was a while back. So yeah. I kind of looked into it a little bit. And of course, out of the box, what they were doing was not accessible. So we did some more digging. And we built them accessible help and everything was fine. But later we asked them, why why was this such a concern? Because it's it's quite unusual to have somebody lead with that, to have a client show up and say, accessibility is our number one concern. And it turned out, they said, well, you know, they made something related to networking. And they said, well, our major client over here has a CIO who is blind. And... <laughs> We can't yep. sell to him unless we produce accessible help. And that's the way a lot of people end up getting into it. There's like a specific reason. I know somebody who, you know, I needed this customer who, when I said earlier that, you know, we don't have any users who are somebody saying we don't have any users who with disabilities, you can't actually, unless you've been able to, send everybody a survey saying do you need you know does this have to work on a screen reader does this have to work with tty does this have to have captions the thing is even if you try the list is so long that you'll never know and what typically happens is a lot of people with disabilities might contact the company and say look i really want to use your product but i can't most just go find somebody else they're no different than they're no different than everybody else because they are everybody else, which is the easy way out. You don't want to spend well, hours trying to get somebody to make something that works for what you need. You'll just go try and find something that already does what you need. 
This actually sounds exactly like the argument against localization, which is basically, oh, all of our customers speak English. Yes, it's, it's very similar. And it's true. All of your current customers speak English because you're not providing anybody that doesn't speak English with the option of using your product. Right. So I, tell you, I, liken it, I liken it back mm -hmm. to the um, mid-90s when the browser wars were going on. And I always used, uh, what was it, Net Netscape Navigator? was kind of my primary browser and every time i would deliver i would talk to somebody about it and they're just like if it works in ie that's fine it's like people use other browsers no none of our customers use other browsers well right. i'm one of your and... customers and i use escape navigator and i can't see your site so it's that to, it, it takes me back to like 20 something oh wow 30 something wow wow a really long time um it's it's the same fight just sort of with a different battle if that makes sense. So, and and I think that um, you've got some statistics around um, not just the legal requirements, but in fact the market in terms of how large the market is of people that have uh, some sort of limitation in accessing content. The World Health Organization estimates that twenty percent globally, a billion people, have at least one disability. And, and that could be anything. They, they and that can be low, it could be low vision. Anything. Uh, it's the world. This is it's always somebody said to me that's an oxymoron, but it's the world's largest minority group, <laughs> and it's the only one that everyone will join at some point. Not you might join it. You will join it. You will end up on crutches because you sprained your ankle. You will end up in a cast because you fell down. Um, my joke when I give presentations is to show pictures of my son. They say that th the statistics basically say that people will spend 11% of their lives with some kind of disability. And my joke was always my son tried to fit in his 11% before he finished high school. The thing is that 11% includes people who were born with some kind of a disability. As well as those who just get it because they got old. So 11%... Right. And, and aging right now, aging, I'm, I'm, I've been laughing. I've been, we read, you read, I read, we all read. And, but you and I, especially, I know we both read a lot and I'm getting so tired of all these story, these novels of the 50 year old gray haired, stooped women. And it's like, oh, come on. There's 50 year olds who don't look like that anymore. There's 60 year olds who don't look like that, but it doesn't mean we don't have other issues. We have arthritis which means, you know, it's hard to mouse. And so I'll switch to the keyboard. Or um, instead of tapping to, to type on my phone, I swipe because it's so much easier on my hand. I just sort of have to hold a finger in place and I can just move around. Or I can use the microphone. And I'm sure it's not me, but I've noticed that the type on my computer is getting smaller and smaller, smaller and smaller. Well, here, two things. One is that what tip the average age is 40 when people's vision starts to change. I'm one of the weird ones. I am farsighted, but most people who get over 40 are nearsighted. Mm -hmm. So it makes kind of a difference. But about 10 years ago, some nifty young 20-year-old designer, nobody will ever know who it is, and he, whoever it is is certainly never going to say who they are, decided that a sort of 
medium gray type that's about what would be eight point when printed is the most professional looking website which kind of rules out anybody over the age of like 45 unless you're wearing glasses and you up your screen size you're up your font size in your browser you just can't read it it's too small yeah and then because that particular person apparently worked for a certain well-known design leader everybody else adopted that same gray on Correct. sort of white and yep. yeah not good. yeah and yeah and the world sits there and goes i can't read it <laughs> i can't read it i it's can't read me. it <laughs> please so so as as we as we kind of wrap up here with our our lament of aging um <laughs> what <laughs> what what are what what is the the advice that you would give somebody that's sort of hearing this and saying okay well i i i hear you and i understand and now i think i need to go think about this and maybe get started where should they start they can start with wicag WCAG, you can just type it in, just if you type in WCAG 2.0, there are guidelines and that, that, that site is awesome. And it not only has the 15 major points, but it actually describes each one. So it includes things like color contrast and captions on videos. Um, one of the things is sort of along the lines of do no harm, which in that it says you need to make things so that if users end up in sort of a quandary, they can get back out again which is what we do. This is what TechCom does. So there's a, a WCAG guideline just for us, really. Um, about eight of them, I think, apply directly to TechCom that, you, that can be implemented immediately. Easily, the quickest way to get started is make sure you're using a style sheet and stick to it. Make sure you always use headings. And headings, by the way, come in handy, not just because screen, screen reader users can pull up a link saying, here's all the headings in this document, but because people with cognitive issues, traumatic brain injuries, uh, anything that just has to do with brain stuff, they can look at text that is a different size and they can go, oh, the bigger text is more important than the text that's smaller, that's, that's more, and that text is more important than the text that is smaller than that. So there's sort of a visual acclamation that happens as people look through things. If you make it look like a heading, then you rule out the screen readers because they can't pull up the headings. Although it's, it still would work with anybody with a cognitive issue. Anyway, so make sure your color contrast is good. Make sure that any graphics that you choose or use or screenshots, if your screenshots don't, if you have trouble or you look at a screenshot and you have trouble and your vision is considered relatively normal, then go to your dev team and say, hey, we need to make some changes here. Like we need to modify this. Somebody emailed me a couple of weeks ago and said, um, I'm working on this website. I've, I've asked somebody to work on a website for me and this is the button that they put on it. What do you think? And I'm like, you're kidding, right? Because it was some like pink text on a variegated blue background. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, that is just awful. <laughs> And the, the way the colors worked out, they just had to change the pink text to black, and it was good enough. The, the blues were light enough that it would make enough color contrast. So you, so you worry about so, that. So it's small things. It's small it's things. basic best yeah. practices. If something looks weird to you, and like I said, you have roughly normal vision, it's going to look weird, weirder to somebody whose vision isn't as good as yours. Or it's not going to appear at all. 
My husband plays Clash of Kings a lot of times. And every now and then he has to run in with the screen and say to me what color. There's, they do these little icons that are one color sitting on a background of a different color. And because all these icons are mushed onto one screen, he can't always distinguish the colors. He can if they were separate, but not because they're all so close together. And I look at him and go, um, I think that one's blue. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but there is, um, and I forget which one it is. Able Gamers would know, but there is actually a game development company where they actually accounted for people who were colorblind right from the start because their CEO was colorblind. And he didn't tell anybody. A lot of times people don't, they don't want to say, you know, it's, it's almost like it's a bad thing, you know. Um, and sometimes people are who with disabilities are treated like it's a bad thing. But this guy just basically, he, and he didn't actually tell anybody for a while that he wanted good color contrast because of him. He just said it's a good thing to do. And eventually it came out that this was why. Whatever the reason, you just, you know, you make it better for everybody. Yeah, we. I used to have a coworker who was quite colorblind, so we would run everything by him. Um, you know, can you see this? How does it look? And uh, of course, now there are, there are websites that'll do that for us. Yes. Um, in in return, of course, he would wander in in the morning and say, "Does this outfit look okay?" Yeah. So, um, okay. So so that I think that sort of that sort of wraps it up here. And thank you so much. Um, there's just a ton of good information here. There's stuff all over. And one thing you can do is go to any government website, um, DOJ, the VA, uh, well, Section 508, obviously. Uh, they should all have a page about accessibility. Even your state government website should have a page about accessibility. And what they've we'll include... done to make their sites mm -hmm. And we'll include a few of those in the show notes to sort of get people started. Yes, I have to send you a bunch of links. You'll find the promised links in the show notes. Shar, thank you again, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Content Strategy Experts podcast brought to you by Scriptorium. For more information, visit scriptorium.com or check the show notes for relevant links.